God, you know in my own heart, I love it when our church prays like this. I don't know who all does it. I don't know what churches involve themselves in this. But I think when you told us your house will be called a house of prayer, that it's very fitting to gather and pray. Not just one person, but Lord, for all of us to lift our voices and pray. Lord, sometimes in the machinery of church, we leave out those fundamental elements. And I think, Lord, this morning, before we even start into the mechanical side of this 40 days, we want to ask You to make it larger and bigger and, and more impacting than we could ever do on our own. God, on that day in September when we're meeting with thousands from our city, of which we are a part, Lord, expand our vision for what God could do, what You could do at First Family. Lord, I pray that day that folks will hear the message of the Gospel even more clearly. Be drawn to respond to You. That we'll lift our hearts in praise that that, that whole building will be filled with Your presence in a way it's never known before. And Lord, may it launch even as we begin here the local expression of what that means in the weeks after. God, I pray that You will launch from here the real biblical sense of what community looks like. How we're in relationship with You and one another. God, we pray that we'll follow You with all of our hearts. And thank You for being the great God of the earth. The captain of our salvation our mighty rock and fortress, the only Savior of the world. In Your name we pray these things. All of God's people prayed with me. Amen. As you find your seat, I'd invite you to take your Bibles and turn to the book of Psalms, that collection of 150 Jewish songs. That's right. We're looking at... um, some selected psalms as we learn about what it means to live a life of worship, not just at church, amen? Not just when there's a guitar going. But how do we live in worship and response to God 24-7? There's no better book to tell us how to do that than the book of Psalms, which is the, the Jewish people's collection of their responses to God. Not just on their Sabbath, and not just when they felt like they gathered with, the, with their praise band, which was led by the sons of Korah, as we learned last week. But as they lived every day in the good and the bad, how did they worship? And we're looking at, at selected Psalms, and this week we come to Psalm 73. Psalm 73. With your finger there, I invite you to share with me in a story I recall from when I was in college. I was probably about 20. And uh, there was a big festival at the elementary school there. And I was with a bunch of junior hires. I was not much older than most of the junior hires. I was a youth pastor at our church. And I was overseeing junior hires. And so, I mean, if you ask for a better job, you're 20. You get paid to work with junior hires. I mean, you're not really, you're kind of acting like a junior hire most of the time. I'm loving it, you know. So I'm just hanging out with them, having a good time. And, and so we're at this festival at the elementary school. And, and man, it was awesome. We were just going from ride to ride and game to game, kind of like a, a mini state fair atmosphere. Um, and then suddenly you could just sense there were a lot of screams and something was going on. You could just sense in your heart, okay, something's different. Well, what had happened was just a, a, a few areas over, the maintenance, uh, the facilities manager of the institution, his name was Doug, um, he had rented like this big cherry picker and it had a big, basically a crane that would extend its arm. And I think it had an arm that was, you know, kind of go extra high. Well, and he was a large guy. And so he gathered a couple of girls from our junior youth group with him and he would take up 
and he'd take them in rides. And so little kids were loving it. They'd go real high and they'd look over the whole grounds and then he'd lower it back. Well, he, he gathered some junior high girls in there with him and, and I think they went over the weight limit because as the thing went, then the base tipped and the whole uh, cherry picker thing began to fall backwards. Well, when Doug Ross was happening, he, uh, Chris and Amy were the ones in the, in the crane. They were in my youth group. He gathered them in his arms and the crane began to fall back and he was in this basket and so he just held them in his arms and he was a large guy and he was a great cushion for those girls. They were injured very little. I think one girl lost a spleen. They were out of the hospital in a day. They had minor cuts and bruises. But as he fell backwards and cushioned them, he did nothing for himself. He had no arms. And so his neck and his head took the brunt of all the impact. And the machine as well that crashed down. And, and Doug may have lived that evening. But he, he was killed. And I'll never forget... In that split second, going from, and you may think this is crazy, but going from an atmosphere of, of like celebration and, and, in a, and in a real sense, worship. Now, it wasn't in church with a guitar, but we're with the believers. We're having a good time. We were worshiping God. We're giving Him our response. We're kind of partying for Jesus. I like that time of worship, don't you? And we're having a good time and we're ministering, we're equipping, we're encouraging and and we're just having a good time with God. And then suddenly, within a matter of seconds, you, you run to this area, you hear a crash or screams, and you look, and here's the guy that you see every week handling the lights and the sound system and the things in church, and he's on the ground, there's blood, and these girls are passed out. And you're like, what happened? I mean, you go from worship to worry in a split second sometimes, don't you? Well, you've done that. When it seems like, man, the party is awesome, and then you get a call. Or you get an email, or you see something, you hear something, and suddenly all of your emotions change. And it's like, hey, God, uh, are you still up there? You know, I'm dialing, are you home? Are you there, God? I'm sure we've all felt that way. That's not just a thing that happens 20 years ago or however many years. I think it's happened this week to some of you. Some of you have received bad news this week. Some of you knew maybe something was happening and it culminated and, and it's hard to accept. I recall when um, just about a year ago, a little maybe a little less than one, I'm not sure exactly, but one of our sister cities in this church, Prairie Ridge, uh, one of their associate pastors, his name is Kevin. And they expected to go to church on a Sunday and, and celebrate God. And instead, Mike, their pastor, has to announce that one of their associate pastor's wife was killed in a car wreck in Chicago. Can you imagine? You go to church, you think, man, the family's going to gather, we're going to celebrate the Lord, and instead you, you hear that one of your staff members, his wife was killed in a car wreck, and now he's left to raise a little girl. And, I mean, you can go from worship to worry in just no time at all. That's how we felt when we had our miscarriage. We're excited about the pregnancy. We had Brett and Bethany, and, and next thing you know, you know, you find out things aren't what you thought, and you're left now reeling and dealing with but the baby you lost. I know that Julie's parents felt that way. Julie was a teenager and they get a knock on the door. And the police are there and they brought tragic news that Julie's brother, their son, teenage son, was killed in a car wreck. I mean, guys, let's just be honest. I could go from table to table, chair to chair. And you could share moments in your life when, when it turned on a dime, didn't it? When suddenly... You begin to wonder, man, 
is this godly thing, is this church thing really all it's cracked up to be? Now, if you felt like that, just nod your head. And I think all of us have. It's okay. I mean, I know that Rich and Lori were here in the first service. And their whole journey with cancer. I look over there at Brian. I think about their journey with cancer and his situation. And there, there are times you wonder, you know what? Is this whole spiritual journey worth it? Does it really work? If you've ever had those feelings, then you can relate to the guy that wrote Psalm 73. If you have your Bible, I want you to make sure you look with me this morning as we read through these verses and comment about them and, and draw some simple truths to help us this week. Psalm 73 is written by a guy named Asaph who was a choir director for King David. He may have written about 12 psalms in this section, or he may have just simply led these psalms. We don't know. That seems to indicate that he actually wrote them. But either way, he was the one responsible for leading the different choirs of the Jewish people in these, uh, in these psalms. And apparently this song here comes out of great tragedy. This is almost like a personal uh, journal entry from a man named Asaph. And look what he says in verse 1. He says, Surely God is good to Israel, to those who are pure in heart. And in that verse, we have a ring of almost like a, like an, um, like yeah, God is good to them. You know, it's almost like a collective noun. Yeah, if you're in Israel, God is good to you. Sure, almost like a doctrinal head knowledge. Because look at the next phrase. But as for me, I mean, it's like yeah, I know that it should be this way. And if you're in Israel as a group, yeah, He takes care of you. But let me tell you something. As for me, and he gets very personal now. Look what he says. As for me, my feet had almost slipped. I had nearly lost my foothold. Why? For I envied the arrogant. Especially when I saw the prosperity of the wicked. Now, I want to answer this question technically first. If you want to know why he slipped and why he was close to turning back, just circle the word in verse 3, envied. Envy always leads to a, to, a, to a place where you second-guess your decisions. Envy is never a good platform on which to operate. And if you find yourself at a place of envy, even though your feelings are real, even though you honestly think that's what you're going through, I'll be honest with you, they're not true. They may be real, and you may actually feel them, but they're not true. Because envy is the place we get a false perspective. It's on the platform of envy. It's the, it's the lenses of envy that make us see things as they're really not. If you don't believe that, just check out TV. They'll show you in 30 minutes what it took 10 hours to make. And you'll think, man, I wish I had it like that. Man, that's envy about what's on TV. And it's not even true. It's a false reality. You with me? Envy is never the proper lens to wear when you're trying to get a real perspective. But for some reason, Asaph was thinking, okay, I'm envious of what's going on around me. Look what he said about this. It affected his perspective. Let me show what he said. Verse 4. They have no struggles. Their bodies are healthy and strong. They're free from the burdens common to man. They're not plagued by human ills. And so pride is their necklace. You know, they wear it. You can see it in them, can't you? These prosperous, arrogant, wicked people. And I'm speaking here in the terms of the Jewish culture, so follow me. They wear it like a necklace. They clothe themselves with violence. Verse 6 talks about how they are, are outwardly, blatantly visible with their pride and their arrogance. They don't tuck it away. They say, hey, 
Man, who is God? I'm fine. I don't have the problems like you have, and I don't believe that Christianity stuff. Verse 8, they scoff and speak with malice. In their arrogance, they threaten oppression. Let's go back to verse 7. I missed that. Their cow's hearts, from their cow's hearts comes iniquity. The evil conceits of their minds know no limits. You begin to see that they're just really, you know, uh, not content with saying, hey, I've got it good. They're just going to go all out to make sure that their iniquity, their wickedness knows no bounds. And they're going to rub it in your face while they're at it. I like verse 9. He says, Their mouths lay claim to heaven and their tongues take possession of the earth. They don't really do this, but in their words, they just make you think they're going to. You know, they, they can do anything. It seems like they're unstoppable. Therefore, their people turn to them and drink up waters in abundance. I mean, it's not enough that these people do this to themselves. They have people that follow them. They seem to be impacting others. They say, how can God know? Does the Most High even have knowledge? Wow, have you ever felt that way? You struggle to live for God. You give of your resources. You give of your time. You, you do what you think is right. And it seems like every step's a struggle. Two here, three back. And the guy down the street, the guy in the cubicle, doesn't give a care about the Lord. Takes every dime for himself. Never thinks a minute about doing what's right. And you know what? It's as easy as, as a cake to him. It's like he's just walking through life without a care. You ever thought that? You ever wondered that? Sure you have. Well, Asaph was there with you. Look what he said. Verse 12 is kind of a summary verse. He says, this is what the wicked are like. Now, this is true in light of verse, what is it, 3? When you look at things from envy, this is what the wicked look like. Always carefree. They increase in wealth. I mean, who wouldn't want that lifestyle? Wouldn't you? Not a care in the world, and the bank account grows. Man, I'm sleeping in, and the money's piling up. I'm not doing a thing. I'm on the boat, and the stocks are growing. Man, the life of Riley is awesome. Here's what it does to those of us who who watch that, though. When from a place of envy, you look around and say, I don't understand why this is happening. Here's what it does to our hearts. Verse 13. He begins to make a transition now. And he shows us what's happening inside his heart. Surely in vain I've kept my heart pure. In vain I have washed my hands in innocence. He says in verse 14, All day long I've been plagued. Remember what the wicked? They weren't plagued at all. The word there is stricken. Same word used in Exodus. When God brought plagues upon the Egyptians. Remember that? I mean, we're not talking about just like a, a little bit of emotional torture. We're talking about actual physical uh, smitten, you know, God goes after him. He says, hey, the wicked seem to have no problem. Me, man, I got one every day. <laughs> he says, all day long I've been plagued. I've been punished every morning. The next verse, he says, if I said I will speak thus, or if I would have said this, I would have betrayed your children. And when I tried to understand all this, man, it was too oppressive to me. Let me just kind of Simply state what's going on here. In these first few verses, he's talking about his confusion. Here's his, his, his one, one thought. He's saying this. Life isn't fair. Just jot that down, would you? His confusion can be summed up in one thing. Life isn't fair. Now, I know that you, every parent has this response. You know, when something happens. Hey, life's not fair. Get used to it. 
You know what? While that's mentally and technically practically true, that does nothing to get us out of the feelings of life isn't fair. We say, yeah, you're right. We go on and we say, yeah, but it doesn't feel any better. It's still not fair. I know it's true. But I don't like it anymore. Life isn't fair. And Asaph was at a point where he began to realize, man, it seems like the wicked have all the breaks and the righteous, you know, it's like everything we're doing is not paying off. That's what he felt like. Now remember, that's his perspective from a platform of envy. But we come to verse 17, which is the turning point in the chapter. Verse 17. He said, I was oppressed. Those things happened. I couldn't understand until I entered the sanctuary of God. In your Bibles, I want you to take a pen and underline that phrase. Until I entered the sanctuary of God. And then out to the left of your number there, the verse number, I want you to draw an arrow upwards and draw an arrow downwards. This is the hinge of the chapter. Everything swings on this verse. Before the presence of God, everything seemed kind of crazy. It's not fair. But after the presence of God, things started making sense. We're going to see that in a few minutes. So this is the, really the swing point of the verse, of the chapter. I want to talk to you a bit about this word sanctuary. Now follow me and take some good notes here. Watch with me. I've told you that, this, that Psalms mirrors the Pentateuch. You remember that? Like the first, There's five books in Psalms. If you're new here, I'm going to give you a quick review. The book of Psalms is divided into five like many books. And, and, and we, see, we see that in these many books, the themes of these many books seem to mirror the first five books of the Old Testament. Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, and Deuteronomy. Well, here we are in the third book, Psalm 73. And he, and he uses the word sanctuary. If you go to Leviticus, which is filled with the sanctuary laws, the ceremonial laws, you'll find that Leviticus is just, just chocked full of instruction and teaching about how to worship God in the tabernacle. So it's, it shouldn't be surprises that we come to Psalm 73. One of the words used is sanctuary. Now, initially that described the tabernacle, which was like the Israel's version of a church plant. Now, if you think you don't like set up, just thank God you weren't an Israelite in the wilderness. I mean, they had to set up this massive tent and they set up for 40 years. I mean, we've been set up about a year now. And our elders are really looking to build, hopefully soon. There's a lot of talk on the table about how to go about that. But what if I said to you, hey, listen, you guys are awesome. Hang in there. We're going to build in 2045. Yeah, that's what you do right there. <laughs> you may not laugh very long, but you say, Todd, nice knowing you. But man, I don't have 45 years left to be setting up in Evelyn every week. You know what? The word sanctuary here speaks technically of the tabernacle. But it also came to be known as the temple later on. If you recall, King David wanted to build God a, a, a permanent place to dwell. But God said, no, David, I'm going to let your son build it. So Solomon actually built the temple. And in there, of course, was the Holy of Holies, the place where the Ark of the Covenant rests. And on that Ark of the Covenant was a thing called the mercy seat. And on the mercy seat was God's presence. And when the Jewish people wanted to get near God, you know what they had to do? They had to come to the temple. They had to come to the priest. They had to come to the, the different mechanisms there and get near to God. But as the New Testament approached and God had no longer a temple, guess who He decided to inhabit? You and me. Those who believe. In fact, the Bible calls us a living temple. So guess where God dwells now? In you! And get this now. 
When all the time is over in Revelation and the new Jerusalem is set up, do you know what the temple will be then? The Bible says that the Lamb will be the temple. Jesus Christ Himself will actually be the temple. That, now, here's what I'm saying. The word sanctuary here describes the place where the presence of God is. It was the tabernacle in the wilderness. It was the temple in the reign of the kings. It's, the, it's Christians in this reign. And one day it will actually be Jesus Christ Himself. He will be on the throne there in the New Jerusalem. He will be the temple. This verse then tells me something about God, that wherever God is, my perspective begins to straighten out. When I'm with God, when I'm in His presence, suddenly things begin to make sense. Now watch me, guys. That means, and I'm going to be very honest with you here, I'm going to be very straightforward with you. When you're not in the presence of God, when you're not spending time with God, when you're not communing with Him, and by the way, that is what we do. As a believer, if you're a believer here, you have God's Spirit. The Bible says in 1 Corinthians 2 that you can communicate with God. He's given you His Spirit so that you may know the mind of Christ. If you're thinking, well, God's way far away and I'm way down here. I don't know what God's doing. That's crazy. That's not even biblical. You can talk to God. You can be near Him and commune with Him. And when that happens, watch this. When that is a regular part of your life, it makes sense. It doesn't fix everything. The wicked still make tons of money. A lot of times Christians don't. If you look in this chapter, textually at least. Things happen to them that don't have... You know, it's, it, that may still happen, but it makes a lot more sense when you're in the presence of God. Let me ask you a question. Have you been in the presence of God this week? I didn't ask you if you had your devotions. You know, hey, okay. Um, read a chapter a day to get the devil away. Rip. Mark off a to-do list. Palm pilot shake. Great. God, I'm with you. See you later. Choo! You know, we're out the door. And God's like, wait, wait, wait. God's trying to catch up with us. Or we're not trying to read the Bible through in a year. So we're like, okay, Exodus 8 through 16. Brr, got it. Okay. I need one in Psalms, one in Proverbs. I'm going to get done by December. You know, like the drive through version of... I'm not talking about devotion. I'm not talking about necessarily... You know, the, the, the prayer line, like, okay, we're all together as a family. Let's pray for the food or let's thank God for the food. And who wants to pray? And so you kind of have prayer at meals and like maybe that's what you think communion with God is. I'm not talking about rituals. I'm not talking about even about certain mechanical things that... I'm not even talking about church services. Whereas, you know, we want God's presence here and it is here. But I'm talking about even more intimate than that. A place where you sit... Now watch this. And as the psalmist said, I think it's 46, where you sit and you're still and you know that He is God. Where He doesn't have to fix all your problems and where you're not after His presence with a T. You're simply after His presence. P-R-E-S-E-N-C-E. You see, I think it's a shallow relationship to only want God when He gives to us. Which is where Asaph found himself probably in the first part of the chapter. You know what, God? They've got everything that's going good. You've done nothing for me. I mean, have I done all this in vain? It's a shallow relationship when we expect God to give and give and only then when we love Him. I mean, what if you do that with your spouse? Like, baby, I love you. we got a good marriage thing going then one day it stops, you know, dinner stops, or the giving stops. Hey, 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 this marriage thing's going to stop. 
unless we, you know, get back to the. I mean, that'd be like, whoa, dude, what kind of relationship is that? Where it's only good if you, if you get. Sometimes I think we treat God that way. We love God and we love what He does for us. But you know what God's really after? He's after being with you and communing with you through the good and the bad. What did Job say? The Lord gives and the Lord takes away. Blessed be the name of the Lord. See, really what Asaph got into in verse 17, I'm going to say it to you in two words. What he really got into? Personal worship. He got into the whole idea of communing with God, not just when the church got together. Not just when they opened the doors and said, okay, Steve's going to strum and, and we're going to sing and now we're going to be in the presence of God. Man, you can be in the presence of God tomorrow. Tonight. Tuesday. Friday. When you come before God and say, Lord, I'm in Your presence, then you are in His sanctuary. You and Him are there together. Here's what happens when we enter God's presence. When His presence becomes really our focus. Look at verse 18 now. He says, Surely you place them on slippery ground. Look back at verse, uh, what is it, verse 3? Verse 4? Oh, excuse me, verse 2. He said he had been on slippery ground in verse 2, didn't it? But now look what he says in verse 18. He says, God, after being with you, I see they're on slippery ground. You cast them down to ruin. How suddenly are they destroyed, completely swept away by terrors, as a dream when one awakes. So when you arise, O Lord, you will despise them as fantasies. Now, I like these next few verses. When my heart was grieved and my spirit embittered, and you ought to, out beside verse 21, you ought to write verses 1 through about like 15. He's speaking there of what he felt earlier. When I was feeling those things earlier, look what it says. I was senseless and ignorant. I was a brute beast before you. Say, Todd, what does that mean? It means simply this. When he had this relationship that simply said, God, you do for me, I'll do for you. And if you don't do for me as good as you do for them, I'm out of here. That's kind of beast-like. That's animal-like. You say, what do you mean? Well, watch this, guys. I mean, most animals, you, you feed them. You pet them, and you house them, they're going to love you. Now, there's a few exceptions. There's some dogs that you don't feed them and house them, they still love you. I don't understand that kind of dog. They're awesome, you know. But for the most part, it's just it's, it's beast-like. It's almost Pavlovian to say, hey, ring the bell, give me what I like, and I'll respond to you. God says, you know what, when we act that way towards Him, we say, listen, you do, and I'll be happy. That's not what He's after. He's not after a relationship with, with animal-like people. He wants a relationship built on inner, inner communing and a, and a place where we're with God beyond the good times. Let me ask you a question. And this will be a little tough to hear. Does your relationship sometimes resemble, with God, sometimes look more like an animal-pet-owner relationship? If He does His part, feed me, house me, pet me, I'm a good pet. Or is it a a constant relationship where, you know what, God, we're together. I want to be with you. Your presence matters most to me. And though I can't figure everything out about why it happens, I trust you. Let's move on here. He says, I don't want to act like that. Instead, in verse 23, look what he says. Instead, God, even when I'm, I'm acting like that, even when I don't understand, he says, yet I am always with you. Well, that's awesome. And the rest of the chapter begins to turn now, Okay. In fact, I want you to make a note of this somewhere as you're taking notes. Between verses 23 and 28, 
you have about 15 references to God, either in a pronoun form or the actual name of God. Fifteen. You know how many you've got before this? About two. Maybe two or three. In the first 15 or so verses, God's not even mentioned because His focus is all out there. But suddenly, when He's with God, everything changes. Read these verses with me. Watch this. Verse 23. Yet I am always with you. You hold me by my right hand. You guide me with your counsel. And afterward, you will take me into glory. And these are some awesome verses. Read with me here. Whom have I in heaven but you, God? And earth has nothing I desire besides you. My flesh and my heart may fail, but God is the strength of my heart and my portion forever. Similar to the word inheritance. We talked about one. Remember that? Verse 27, those who are far from you will perish. You destroy all who are unfaithful to you. But as for me, it is good to be near God. Now that verse will will turn you for loops right there. He doesn't say why. He doesn't say it's good for me to have God fix my problems. He doesn't say it's good for me to have God, you know, give me what I want. He just says, you know what, for me, it's good to be near God. Wow. That's an incredible amount of contentment. Isn't it? And then last part of the verse, I have made the sovereign Lord my refuge. I will tell of all your deeds. You know what he went from? He went confusion. He went from confusion to clarity. Jot that down, would you? The last part of the chapter talks about a couple of things. He said, I'm no longer confused about life being fair. I now have a great point of clarity. God isn't finished. He says, He set them on slippery ground. One, the day is going to come. I understand their final destiny. He said the game's not over yet. A lot of us are judging things before the final inning. We're not finished yet. God's not finished yet. Hang on. That will bring some clarity to your walk with God, to your perception of life. When you gain that kind of clarity, suddenly you will experience a deep contentment. That contentment is talked about in the last few verses. You know what it is? God is enough. God is enough. I love this verse. It is good for me to be near God. I have made the Sovereign Lord my refuge. Think about it, guys. Here's an author moving from confusion to clarity to contentment. Who here this morning is to take that journey with me? Don't raise your hands. and Just think with me. Have you been confused? Have you had questions about why and is this fair and is it right and I don't understand all that's going on? In the presence of God, suddenly clarity comes. God's not finished with everybody yet. And when we realize that, our contentment increases. And we begin to see, you know what? God is enough. It is simply enough to be near Him. Can I share with you some things about the word near that I think very interesting this week? I was thinking about this word near. You know, God has brought us near first of all. We're not far away. Remember Ephesians? We were once far away, but the blood of Christ has brought us near. You are near to God. He wants you near Him. To be near someone is to to know and to feel their heartbeat. It's to know that that you're protected and secure. To be be far away is probably to have those feelings and, and concrete, that concrete knowledge removed. Much of the answer to your confusion 
And your sense of like, life isn't fair, lies in this one simple thing. Listen very carefully. It's directly proportionate to the amount of time you are near God. You see, I, I want to ask you a question. When over the last seven days were you with God in a way that He could clear away the cobwebs? I know you're busy. I am too. I know you've got a, a list of things to do a mile long. And you're only halfway done and that list is even a week old. <laughs> I realize there is more on your plate than you bargained for. So is that going to crowd out God and leave you at a place where it's like, I'm more confused this week than I was last week? But we keep crowding out the sanctuary place. The place of His presence. We keep pushing it back. God, I don't have time to pray. God, I don't have time to be with You. Can I be honest with you? You're too busy not to spend time with God. You don't have it in you to bear up under the weight of the world and the pressures of life if you're not with God. You do not have it in you. Humanly speaking, you will fall and crumble. and So will I. It is impossible to walk this journey watching the arrogant and the wicked. And without the presence of God, it is impossible to carry that. You, you don't have it in you. Which is why most churches are filled with frustrated, confused Christians. They'll play the game, sit in the chair. You can call them pews if you like. Sit at the table. They'll sing the song, but they'll leave thinking, yeah, it doesn't work for me. Just like Psalm 73. I bring you back to a place of personal responsibility. Answer your question. When of the last seven days have you spent time in God's presence? Just you and just Him. So He could clear away your cobwebs. Answer your questions. Work on your heart. Can I show you an interesting, uh, an interesting uh, contrast? Look at verse 28 again. I'm going to show you one thing as we close. Verse 28. He, the phrase, as for me. Do you see that? But as for me. When's the last time you saw that phrase in this chapter? you remember? Look back at verse 2. But as for me. But they're opposites. In, the, in verse 2 it was, man, yeah, God's good, but as for me, I don't see it, baby. Now in verse 28, it's like, you know what? Man, you know what? God's going to take care of the wicked. He's going to take care of that. But as for me, I'm just going to get close to God. It's a totally opposite. I mean, it's a complete turnaround. It's opposite feelings in these verses. Which is what some of us ought to do today. You came in here thinking, you know what? I'll do the church thing. I'll check out this new church. When I've been here a year, I'll keep going. I told them I'd be committed. And I'm sure that's not everybody's feeling. But I imagine there are people frustrated and confused and, and life has not treated you well. I mean, sometimes you know there's a lot of pain. You have a lot of hurt. You take it at work and you got a call and you got an email. It's like, you know what? What do I do with all this? It's a good question. To harbor that, to keep it in, helps no one. To bring it to God helps you immensely. So i got a simple point of action for you this week. Very simple point of action. When this week, when this week will you set aside time 
to be in God's presence. Now, don't call me basic. Don't call me simple. Don't point a finger and say, Todd, we sat through 30 minutes to hear that. We know that. I disagree. I flatly, wholeheartedly disagree. You take surveys in churches, about 10 to 12% of your church is involved in regular, you can call it devotions, meditations, call it what you want. George Barnes polls say that most churches, about 10 to 12% of their people, actually spend time every day on a weekly basis with God. So I'm brave enough this morning to come before you and say this to you. Don't make the next week like last week. Don't watch too much TV. I'm getting kind of personal here, aren't I? Getting right where you live, aren't I? You know why? Because I live there. I live the same thing you guys do. Don't work the extra hours if you can help it. I live there. Don't don't grab the remote. Do something different so that this week your time with God clears away the cobwebs. Maybe change if you're reading your Bible and it seems stale, change it up. Maybe maybe there's some other ways to go about it with you. Maybe instead of the same routine, you, you find a new place, a different time. Here's what I'm saying, though, guys. If you're finding yourself confused, I'm praying for the turnaround that we see from 2 to 28 in this chapter. I'm praying for it in your life. That you'll go from, yeah, it's good for them, but I don't get it, to where now you say, you know what? Regardless of them, as for me, man, being near God is good enough for me. That's how we make it through the tough times. That's when life starts to make sense. When we are near God. So when are you going to spend time with God this week? I mean, what if it was uh, with your spouse? What if it was always just rote and stale and ritual? And What if I said to my wife, Honey, it's 7.30, let's have our little meeting. She said, Okay, and every day for a week, 7.30, we had a little five-minute meeting. I checked it off my list. Great, I've got the, the daily wife meeting out of the way. Check it off and I can go to my life now. Do you think that really worked? No, I can tell you, it wouldn't work. Trust me, okay? I can just answer that definitively. And it shouldn't work. And vice versa. So some of you need to really reconsider and think, are you honestly, actually spending time in God's presence? It is difficult. It's very difficult. Things will creep in. Yesterday, we had a moment which our kids all ran out to play. And I'm not sure, I think Brett was at a friend's and the girls were home and they were riding bikes and there was a moment in the house when there were no children. And suddenly we thought we'd seize the opportunity. So I, I went to the piano. I thought, honey, this is a great moment. I think she was doing something. and So I just sat on the piano to play something, just sing to myself. And Within three minutes, all the kids run back in. Bang, bang, they're playing the piano with me, banging on the chords. And I'm like, it never fails, does it? You know, just you soon sit down. And she had said to me before I started, she goes, you better hurry because they may come back in. And sure enough, I mean, things will crowd in on you. There, there's, you know, I mean, the minute you try to say, I'm going to be still and alone, you can expect it. You cannot let that stop you, deter you. I'm asking you something today. I want you to move from confusion to clarity to contentment. And I think it happens when you're in the sanctuary, the presence of God. When you're involved every day in personal worship. There's not enough here on Sunday morning to carry you all week. 
that okay to say? Ain't nobody that good. You've got to find time to enter the sanctuary on your own. Say to your family, hey, let's go to church today. It's Tuesday. Whoa, Dad, wait, we don't go till Sunday. No, I mean, we're going to go to God's presence now in our living room. Okay, Dad, if you say so, you know. No, 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 no. That'd be a little weird, right? Say it to your spouse. Say it to your friends. Hey, at lunch today, guys, let's go find some time in God's presence. Shake things up. Do what you've got to do to make verse 17 a reality in your life. Get in the presence of God. Life begins to make sense when that happens. What changes do you need to make so that in the next seven days you'll have time for God to clear away the cobwebs? I'll bring you to a place of prayer. Would you please bow your heads with me? It's easy to go from worship to worry, isn't it? I'm asking this week for God to take you from worry back to worship. When life wants to throw a curve to you and take away your own sense of of personal relationship with God and your own identity, when it seems like worry becomes the, the common course at every meal, I pray that God's presence will bring you back to the place of worship. Even in times that are tough. As I was studying this week and praying and just thinking about this chapter, I, this song came to my mind. And, I, and God has used it all week in my life. It talks about looking into Christ and gazing on His loveliness and, and, and seeing His holiness. And as we do that, suddenly we're brought to a place where our heart responds with these words, I worship you. God, I don't come here to take something from You. I don't come here to demand. I just worship You. With all that I don't know, with all the ways things just don't make sense, when I'm in Your presence, I do respond with worship. Lord, that's on a Monday through Sunday time frame. I want to ask You to keep Your heads bowed. If you know the song, sing it with me. If it just seems like something you just picked up, you can sing along with you. You may want to sing in your heart. Verses like this. Just keep your heads bowed. When I look into your holiness, when I gaze upon your loveliness, when all things that surround become shadows in the light of you, when I found the joy of reaching your heart. My will becomes enthroned in your love. When all things that surround become shadows in the light. Then these words we sing as a response to God. I worship you. I worship you. I worship you, I worship you, the reason I live is to worship. With your heads bowed, 
Let me pray for us. God, I just ask that in times when the confusion of life just seems to be more than we can bear, bring us to your sanctuary, to that place where your presence is all we need. It is good to be near God. Lord, that is enough for us. Lord, take us away from the fix-it mentality. Remove and, 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 and purge us from the present framework. P-R-E-S-E-N-T. And instill within us the mindset that your presence should be good enough. God, I thank you that our hearts cry to worship you, not just today, but every day. Lord, we cry to you as that song said, I worship you. So Lord, as we look upon you, as we're in your presence, we worship you. Why don't you sing that with me again? Let your heart cry that to God. Lord, I worship you. I worship you. I worship you. That's the reason I live. We worship you, God. Regardless of what comes, good or bad, God, that our worry be turned to worship. I worship you. I worship God, we offer this sacrifice of praise to you. We give this worship to you, Lord. As a token, as a, as a gift. Thank you for clearing away the confusion, taking away the blood, giving us the right perspective. We do ask these things in the precious name of your only Son, Jesus Christ. Just hold me, love me. 